You're listening to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey. Everybody, and welcome back once again to the Hoosier State Sports Show with Adam and Joey. I'm Joey, and as always, I'm joined by my friend Adam. How are you doing? Pretty good, other than the Super Bowl letdown last night. I know, that was such a good game, too, and then it just kind of got ruined for me in the end. Yeah, we all know why for that one, for sure. (laughs) Adam, you want to let us know what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so the Colts have finally got their coach. Pacers make a move at the deadline, and IU continues to win while Purdue picks up their third loss of the season. Yeah, I'm still kind of hurting from that Purdue loss, but I am excited because, as you mentioned, the Colts have their coach. Adam Schefter reported on Sunday afternoon that all the other candidates were made aware that the team planned to move forward with Shane Steichen as their next coach. Obviously, we just talked about the Super Bowl. Steichen had that Super Bowl to play last night, so the team couldn't officially make an offer to him, but just reported today, and we were recording this on Monday, Steichen is on his way to Indiana. So hopefully a deal would be done soon. I'd be highly shocked if it's not done sometime this evening or Tuesday morning. But Adam, I know we've we've kind of briefly talked about Steichen as we covered all these candidates, but now that he appears to be the guy for the Colts, can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, so like, sorry, he started his coaching career in 2011 as a defensive assistant coach for the Chargers, and then... He was hired by the Browns for a short stand as an offensive quality control coach, went back to the Chargers in 2014 for that same position, then was promoted to quarterback's coach in 2016. And then finally, he was promoted to interim offensive coordinator with the Chargers and then for the full-time basis in 2020. And then with 2021, Nick Sirianni recruited Steichen to the Eagles as their offensive coordinator. So, What are your thoughts about the hire, Joey? To be completely honest with you, of the candidates we were given, I think this is as close to a home run pick as you could have had. I mean, you mentioned it. Offensive coordinator for the Chargers in 2020. That is Justin Herbert's rookie year. We know what kind of trajectory Herbert's career is on. And then this this year and last year, in Jalen Hurts' first two years of his career, and you see what kind of trajectory Hurts is on. So I believe obviously what the Colts do to hopefully select their quarterback in the upcoming draft, but this was a slam dunk, slam dunk hiring. Um, I know what a lot of Colts fans are going to say. I've already seen it a little bit, you know, the last time we hired a Eagles offensive coordinator, it didn't work out very well, of course, referring to Frank Reich. And I, I kind of understand where you're coming from with that, but like you and I both stated last week, Adam, we absolutely needed this coach to be an offensive with an offensive background, and he did. And just because he's coming from the same team as Reich, I just I don't see any reason why that would deter us. But one thing again, I'd like, like to I said, enter- look at Jalen Hurts. He's only twenty three years old, Adam, if I'm correct. Yeah. And that Super Bowl twenty four. Twenty four, sorry. And his first ever Super Bowl thrown for over three hundred yards, had a total of four touchdowns between rushing and passing and I believe it was 70 rushing yards Steichen yeah, which was, was a Super absolutely Bowl a part of that and I don't I don't care what anyone says and I know you're a big Jalen Hurts fan and to, but in my opinion there's no Jalen Hurts without Shane Steichen no so so but that being said let's say this is made official tonight or tomorrow morning 
one of his first tasks is going to be filling in the staff. So what are some things you might be hearing about future coordinators for the Colts, Adam? Well, real quickly, I kind of wanted to spot or touch on something you had mentioned too with Frank Wright. One of the things, I don't know if you remember this, is how he was not exactly our frontline choice. Right. In my mind, I think you're absolutely right. You had to get the home run candidate. I think he was probably, other than Brian Callahan, you know, my top guy in mind. And so looking at, you know, all of those circumstances with him, I, I think we did a really solid job. Oh, I, I agree 100%. For coordinators, though, I know we've got the defensive coordinator down, and I believe Steichen is one of the coaches that reportedly did want to keep Gus Bradley on, and apparently for good reason. Steichen and Gus Bradley had some overlap during their times with the Chargers as well. Also couple this with the fact that the Colts have been blocking attempts by teams to interview Gus Bradley as part of a lateral move. They shouldn't be too much of a surprise if no changes come on the defensive side of the ball. And I I would assume, like you said, that was a talking point in all these interviews that the Colts held with the candidates. Now, offensive coordinator is a little bit of a different story. I know we're still kind of in a who are we going to get type of player or type of coach. So I'm going to throw a curveball out there. One that I've heard multiple reports about is the Eagles quarterback coach, Brian Johnson. So interestingly enough, Johnson was an early favorite to be promoted by the Eagles to replace Steichen. There are reports, however, that Steichen desires to bring him to Indianapolis with him. So in your mind, do you think that's a move that happens? Do you think it's something that's not plausible? Well, like you just said, he's he's actually already one of the favorites to replace Steichen in the offensive coordinator role for the Eagles. But I also want to add to that that the Ravens have requested to interview Brian Johnson for their vacant offensive coordinator role. So absolutely, do I want Brian Johnson to come to Indianapolis? Yes. Johnson has had plenty of experience worth working with young quarterbacks. You know, he spent many years at the college level before getting this opportunity with the Eagles, and he's quickly become one of the top candidates for an offensive coordinator position. So the fact it's not going to be easy to get him here. So it just comes down to how much he liked working with Steichen and Steichen's ability to basically recruit him to Indianapolis but that would be one of those that I would be extremely happy with I've also read reports about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers also trying to get Brian Johnson yeah in my mind oh go ahead I was just gonna say he he definitely is one of the most sought after candidates right now and I did write an article about him you can find that at HoosierStateSports.com but what was you about to say Adam I'm gonna be pretty honest I do not know if I'm Brian Johnson, if I feel comfortable leaving the safety net that is Jalen Hurts. You know, my my love of Jalen Hurts as a quarterback. Obviously, the Ra- the Ravens situation is a little bit spottier. You know, does Lamar Jackson stay? Tampa Bay does not currently have anyone on their roster other than Kyle Trask, who is not likely to be their starter come day one of 2023. I think Indianapolis has an outside shot at him. I would say it's Indianapolis or he stays in Philadelphia. I think a lot of that comes down to what type of offensive control Steichen wants to have versus 
the type of role that Johnson himself is looking for. Yeah, and I, I want to throw this out there too. Like like you said, it would be it'd be hard to believe that Johnson would be willing to leave Philadelphia, not just for Jalen Hurts, but the fact that they were that close to just winning a Super Bowl. So yes, I understand how that position would be more intriguing to him. But kind of like you said, I think Indianapolis is right up there with having a chance to get him just because of the relationship with Steichen. But I wanted to, I wanted to mention one more thing while we're on the topic of Steichen and offensive coordinators. One thing I, br- I hope Steichen brings to Indianapolis is Nick Sirianni, when he first went to the Eagles, he, he was calling the plays on offense. But it didn't take long for him to, re- or for him to give those duties over to Steichen. And I don't know about you, and maybe this is just recency bias with the failures that we had out of Frank Reich's play calling, but I would love it if whatever coordinator Steichen would bring in, he would give them the responsibility of calling these plays. I would I would have to say I agree with that. With the quarterback situation coming up, I, I know the thing about the Eagles that I love to watch is their ability for the quarterback to run. They've got good rushes out of the backfield. They have some excellent play calling. It's not, you know, the stale play calling we got from Frank Reich where it became very predictable. I think the Eagles can, you know, do a lot of different things with the different types of talents they have. So in my mind, when I consider looking at the quarterbacks in the draft, which I know we are going to be a couple weeks from talking about more in advance, I like the idea of, bringing that type of play style to Indy where you have a dual threat type of quarterback, you know, you need someone bigger and stronger like Jalen hurts, you know, that has that muscle to put on. And I'm going to say this early just because I'm becoming more in favor of it for the Colts. I think you, you stand firm at four. And if Will Levis is who's there, I think he has, you know, people doubting him, that type of play calling. I've told you before I wasn't a big fan, but now that I know the type of coach we're getting, the type of system he comes from, I'm a bit more in favor of that move perhaps down the road. Yeah, and you know also that I'm also a fan of Will Levis. My priority was and still is with this hire, C.J. Stroud, and this is where we kind of differ because I don't hate the idea of moving up. I understand what that'll cost us, but in my opinion, we – hit a home run on this coaching hire, it's time to hit a home run at the quarterback position, regardless of how we, you know, regardless of how we get there. Completely fair perspective. Yeah. And of course we'll dive into this quarterback talk more and more over the next month or so, as we get ready for that draft coming up. I don't know about you, but this is probably the most excited I've been for the NFL draft in years. I think it's because we finally have a chance to do, something we haven't done where Chris Ballard has never drafted an early quarterback. We have Sam Ellinger late. I believe he was a sixth round pick, but I I think you're right. We have to hit a home run at quarterback. And now it comes down to what type of offensive system we run, want to run. And so this offensive coordinator hire is very important to start putting those pieces together for what we'll eventually look for in our new quarterback. Oh, absolutely. And Steichen only being 37, I'm hoping he's just another one added to the list of those young, innovative minds that have burst onto the scene lately as great head coaches in the NFL. Well, Adam, 
You want to talk about some Pacers? I know they've been kind of mean to you here lately, but. <laughs> well, I've decided I'm just going to get the hard stuff out of the way. It might sound a little bit rushed, but Pacers have lost all three of their games this past week. Not a whole lot new on that front. We lost to the Wizards 127 to 113 in a game where they were down 80 to 57 at the half. They were out before that game really even got started. So looking kind of further down the road, we've lost eight of our last 10. I want to say we've lost 17 of 20 now. We have just completely shut down in terms of being a productive team right now. And we're obviously down to 12th in the Eastern Conference. With that, chance chances at the playoffs are looking pretty slim now. And I don't know about you. It just seems like the team has completely run out of steam. I don't know if it's the play calls that Rick Carlisle is making. I don't know if the guys are tired just heading into the All-Star break. But I will say at this point, they need to gain some momentum this week heading into the All-Star break. Or you might as well start getting the bench players some, some minutes in the well, starting lineups. I want I want to throw this out there, and this is just my observations. And I don't want to bounce completely back to the Colts, but you remember there was a moment in the Colts season this past season where it seemed like a, a switch was flipped. I don't know if it was when Frank was fired or what have it, but it went from trying to win games to the team just looked completely flat. It looked like they didn't care if they won or not. And the goal ultimately became, became, you know, let's get a better draft pick. And like you said, the playoff chances with every loss are just getting slimmer and slimmer. So at what point do the Pacers just completely erase the thought of a playoff chance and try to get their name in on the, in the draft lottery? I think it honestly, they're a mid round lottery pick now, probably, I believe, if I'm right, we're, we're worse than all but three teams in the West yeah. and four teams in the East, so we'd be picking at seventh or eighth as it currently stands. Truthfully, you mentioned it last week, the Pacers are already better this season by record than they were at all last season. Again, is... the team made improvement, which, you, like you were going to say, is crazy. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, which is just a testament to how strong they were looking at the beginning of this season. And I wanted to throw one more thing out there. I mentioned last week how bad the timing was for Halliburton's injury. And we're going to get into some of the, you know, the trade that the Pacers made here in a minute. But I saw Rick Carlisle even said, just like I said last week on the podcast, the timing was horrible. He, he even said if that time, if Halliburton didn't get hurt, and they didn't go on that losing skid, then maybe the trade deadline looked a little different than than it did ultimately for the Pacers. Certainly, for sure. When you start considering, you know, the implications of that injury, we were, I want to say, close to 10 games above 500 before that happened. And I think since, I want to say we were 22 and 12 at one point. We're sitting at 25 and 31 now. Yep. Just the sheer losing streak and I think you're you're a young team I understand that there's going to be growing pains but at some point you have to flip a switch which is kind of where again let me talk a little bit about the trades and how I personally felt at the deadline I know we've discussed this and we each have slightly different thoughts so the Pacers made one trade which Obviously, for a lot of teams at the trade deadline, you're trying to figure out, okay, am I trying to win it? Or is 
going to be a more of a rebuild. We traded for George Hill, Jordan Noria, Serge Ibaka, and three second-round picks from Milwaukee. We actually got back the 2024 second-rounder we traded when we uh, signed Malcolm Brogdon a few years ago. In my mind, you also get some cash considerations, which are, you know, okay, whatever that is. But that's that's not a trade you make if you're trying to win. The Pacers pretty much spelled the direction they were going in with it, as you attested to a second ago. Yeah, and that that trade, in my opinion, isn't one that, like I said last week, if you knew that you had a chance to compete, you make a trade to take you up a level, which obviously this trade was not. If you're 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 done for this year, looking for the future, you kind of drop some of your assets and bring in some increased assets, which kind of to me is what it looks like they did. But you mentioned that there are some other trades that could have been had. Could you kind of dive into that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so I mentioned this in my article, which I wrote on Saturday on Hoosier State Sports. One of the biggest headlines that was coming across the entire league was what was going to happen to OG Obi from the Toronto Raptors. Lots of trade discussions with the Raptors, lots of trade off or lots of trade discussions and offers that were made. The Pacers, in my opinion, made an offer that was strong, very strong, and then better than strong. You offered three first round picks. So the Pacers are probably picking top 10. We have Cleveland's first and we have Boston's first. They all also offered Houston's second rounder, which is likely to be the first pick. Four picks in the top 32. As a team, the Toronto Raptors are like, no, that's not good enough. I I understand at the deadline you're trying to get all of your value. But at what point as the Pacers is it like, okay, maybe we add a little bit more and get a player that we could really use? Again, Chris Duarte, we've talked about his struggles this season. Isaiah Jackson, he's kind of playing a redundant role on the bench. You know, again, we had three players we waived. We we waived Goga, James Johnson, who we have since reclaimed, and then Terry Taylor, who is a pretty solid contributor last season. But you could use some of those players as leverage to get something with the Raptors. Again, the Raptors wanted cheap contracts over a longer term all those contracts were cheap maybe not long term they were all expiring deals so it's not gonna hurt the pacers any that they cut them but in my mind Obi is considered a defensive presence he's someone that really would have helped this team at a position of need they've needed a power forward for a few years now the team continues to not really address it yes you thought jalen smith was the answer He's been hurt all season. Isaiah Jackson, I know the team was pretty high on him and they still value him, but he's more of a rotational guy. You could have plugged in a hole and still made the playoffs this season. The the team is only about five or six games really from being in the top eight. We're kind of in this, you know, again, I've talked about it a lot, this middle ground where the team isn't good enough to compete long-term we're not good enough to have a top five pick. You, you have to start doing something at some point. And I know you you picked Mathurin at sixth. And that's a good that's a good solid draft pick. Neb Hard was a good pick. 
I'm glad the team has been able to acquire them, but you want it a difference maker on the team. I yeah, get. I'll let you finish. Go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, I, I get why the Pacers didn't make the trade. I'm just a, a little bit bitter about it. It might be better for you to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, and, and to just put my standpoint on it, because I know we've mentioned it before, I'm not a huge Pacers fan. I, I, I do follow them, and I enjoy, I enjoy watching this team, but from my standpoint, I think that the Pacers did the right thing at the trade deadline. I do want to throw out there, I think Toronto is stupid for not accepting that trade offer secondly to that i think it was stupid for the pacers to offer that much for og and Yanobi. of course i'm not a hoosier fan either so i don't have any bias there but the reason i say i think the pacers ended up making the right move like you said we bring in george hill 36 years old not going to be much of a contributor on the court but he has the strong ties to indiana being from indianapolis or playing at iupui Obviously, he's been on the team before, but I think he's going to be one of those mentor guys, especially when you look at a guy like ben, Benedict Mathurin on the bench. So, George Hill, I look at somebody to mentor some of your young players like Mathurin. We'll put that on the column of building towards the future. Bring in a guy like Jordan Nuwara, who's pretty young, has potential, hasn't really shown that potential yet in the league, but another young guy who has the potential. So, we'll file that under the column of building for the future. Obviously, Serge Ibaka was waived. Really, Milwaukee was just trying to dump that contract. And then you mentioned the three second-round picks that they got from Milwaukee, including the Pacers' original 2024 second-round pick, which could end up being a pretty early second-rounder. But I I think that – and I I want to correct myself from earlier. I said it was Carlisle that made the comments. It was Kevin Pritchard that said if it had not been for Halliburton's injury, they would have been more aggressive. To me, since Halliburton's been back, and I know there wasn't much time between his return and the trade deadline, this team does not look like a team that was only an OG and Unobi away from being competitive. So in my opinion, if you if you make that deal and you trade all these picks, yes, maybe like you said, you get up in the top eight as far as seedings go and make the playoffs. But correct me if I'm wrong, making the playoffs is not the end goal. It's important to get to the next step, which is competing for a championship. But to me, that would have been selling your future to still maybe be a playoff team this year. So from the outside looking in, and I want to get your opinion on how you feel about what I just said. I think that the, that the Pacers did the right thing about staying pat, you know, picking up a few more picks and a guy like George Hill that can kind of mentor the young guys on the team. I'm going to agree and disagree with you. So George Hill, I think he's a great addition to the team from that mentor standpoint. No disagreements there. Here's the problem. I'm going to use your own words from past discussions that we've had against you. You've always been someone that believes in a sure thing. You'd rather have some sure talent over hypotheticals with draft picks that may not pan out. Let's be completely honest. How many late first round picks do you know that usually pan out? They, they don't. They're in the NBA. They contribute off the bench. They don't really turn in anything. And you know the Pacers' history of picking late has never served them any favors. I cannot think of one late first-round pick that they've had that has been of significance. That being said, I get 
your intention to keep the early first because right now that's your best solid bet at getting a good contributor on the roll. So I consider my stance to be one of you go after a sure thing. I know in the 90s, early 2000s, three first-round picks got you a superstar. It got you a game-changer. It's kind of crazy now how the deadline and how picks have diminished. So I'm going to throw I'm going to throw all the cards on the table. If I'm the Pacers, there's only one way you to right this wrong that you've done to Pacers fans everywhere. I, I'm I'm sticking to my stance that they've made a mistake. You get a way to get the number one pick, and let's think about what the Pacers have for this next season. You have three first round picks, one that is seventh overall. Then you have Houston second, and I believe two or three more second rounders next season. You're you're talking six picks. Those guys cannot make the team. The Pacers have 13 players signed under contract for next season. Rosters, I'm pretty sure, are usually about 13 to 15. You always want to have a little bit of wiggle room. The Pacers could be using these picks as leverage to make that type of trade to really move up and get a sure thing. Victor Wembanyama is a power forward. He has that stature and size. Maybe that's what the Pacers are thinking. I'd like to hope so. But Herb Simon never pulls the trigger okay. and makes important moves. So my, my rebuttal to what you just said, you're right. I have said numerous times in the past, I'd rather have the sure thing than an unsure draft pick. But remember, I'm also a Colts fan, and for three years now, I've seen them get what they presume to be, quote-unquote, the sure thing. But besides that point, you mentioned how many late first-round draft picks pan out. I don't have that answer. But where we are still kind of disagreeing is I don't see the pace, their own pick being a late-round draft pick. I see that one. I agree with that. I see that one that ultimately could land you, Victor. I know Pacers haven't had much luck with the lottery system, but so that's for two. For number three, I don't I don't know what you would consider a late pick, Adam. What what would be a late pick in your mind? Twenty fifth to thirtieth. The, the Cavaliers okay. and Boston are two of the better teams in the East. I think Cleveland is going to shock a lot of people and probably be playing in a championship. I know people will call me crazy on that one. I think you have Donovan Mitchell, and he's a true difference maker on that team. Boston's just got depth everywhere and their starters are all pretty impressive i guess i guess my biggest hold up in that trade deal wasn't cleveland or boston's pick it was the pacers pick which again i feel like is going to be one of the top picks in the draft and to throw even if it's the slimmest a chance of getting a guy like victor in the draft i think that would have been a completely bad move that ultimately would have maybe got the pacers to the playoff Maybe they would have even won a series, but I don't think that would have made them a true competitor. So I just don't think that would have made any sense. What I, I guess what I'm saying is that at this point, you right the wrong by getting the number one overall draft pick. You're, the Pacers have never in their history picked number one. I expect no changes with that. Houston or Oklahoma City are going to get the pick. It's, it's one of them. They've picked early the last couple of years. History has a weird way of repeating itself. Hey, never Obviously. say never, Adam. Stay positive. <laughs> Again, I'm just I'm of the mindset that you you're not going to draft six players. 
second round picks, they don't pan out. If the Pacers are not picking number one, right. they they need to either leverage that to move up to number one next year, or again, I know that you could probably move the picks and get picks in future years, maybe get a better starter at power forward. I I know that that's got to be something the team has to address. It was not really addressed at the deadline, nor is it a shooting or a small forward. Ibaka is a power forward center type of player, but he was never going to stay on the team anyway. And obviously George Hill is a point guard. So you haven't really addressed the needs of the team. Again, I, I know it's kind of a loot or a win, lose, win, win situation. The the Pacers got some free picks. They didn't really have to do much. Just take on another team's salary, help them ease some burdens. But again, I watch my teams lose. I'm ready for something bigger to happen. I'd like to see the Pacers go back to the way it was during the Paul George days where they're getting deep into the playoffs. That's all I can ask for as a fan because Indianapolis, unless they drastically change their salary cap approaches and really want to go big, they're not going to win championships unless they start taking some risks. So I guess all it really boils down to, and I understand how hard this is as a Colts fan, hell, as a Purdue fan, considering they've never won a championship, just comes down to being patient. It's hard, I know. So, on the topic of Purdue, how's their week been going for men's basketball? Well, their week started out pretty well. They uh, they had a nice rebound game after that tough loss to Indiana. They beat Iowa on Thursday night by a score of 87-73. to 73, And it was really a team affair. I'll start with Braden Smith. Remember, he had that critical turnover late in the IU game. All he did in response to that was come out against Iowa to drop his career-high 24 points, four rebounds, five assists. Again, I just – what a way to bounce back after that costly turnover against IU. You know, a lot of freshmen, that's something that could really buckle them, and you could see that effect on them for a couple of days. But just really mature by Braden Smith to erase that out of his mind and go out in the very next game and put out this best performance of his career. Another Fletch, freshman, Fletcher Lawyer, he added another 17 points. Again, I said freshman. These freshmen have just continued to play a huge part of this team's success. Zach Eady finished the game with 14 points, 14 rebounds. That sounds like a quiet game for him. And it's funny because that would be a good game for most people. But in total, Purdue had five players with double figures in that win against Iowa. But... Despite that bounce-back game against Iowa, Adam, Purdue, Purdue ended up picking up their third loss of the season uh, Sunday when they lost to Northwestern by a score of 64-58. to 58. So what, what happened in that game? I know we've talked about this. Purdue, it seemed like we thought, oh, they'd run away, Northwestern as a team. Yeah, and it did look like there for a little bit in the first half that they were going to re- run away with it but it was a tale of two halves let me tell you so the first half Purdue shot 42 percent from the field on 11 of 26 shooting and 35 percent from three on 5 of 14 pursuing and not not great but not not bad at all for college ball 
But then you look at the second half statistics, 27% from the field in the second half, Adam. They made a total of six field goals on 21 attempts and went 0 for 8 from 3. I think the final five minutes of that game, Northwestern outscored Purdue by like 15 points or something. It was ridiculous. But I look at another thing, and we talked about this last week when Purdue lost to IU, turnovers. Once again, we're an issue. As a team, Purdue turned the ball over 16 times. You cannot turn the ball over that many times and expect to win. I don't care if it's a team like IU you're playing or a Northwestern team who, quite frankly, is right there with IU, Adam. They both have the same conference record, but... Zach Eady had it had another decent game with 24 points and eight rebounds, but believe it or not, he had six of the 16 team turnovers. You, you just need to do better than that. So needless to say, after that loss, Purdue's reign as the number one team in the nation came to an end with both Alabama and Houston jumping them in the rankings. So they dropped to number three. But one thing I want to say, and as hard as it is for a fan like myself to watch Purdue lose, I'm just glad that they're going through these issues now instead of when it comes time, you know, for that Big Ten tournament and March Madness because I have all the confidence in the world that Painter can and will get this problem solved, but it's still it's tough to watch. I, I know we've talked about Zach Eady being a slight liability in my mind. You know, he's not exactly the fastest guy. If if you're Purdue, I, I agree with your, your idea of – if you're going to lose, you need to do it now. My problem is you can't lose to Northwestern. Purdue has to have games like that as wins. Again, you know, I talk about IU all the time and how they seem to lose the ones that everyone would think that they could win. But it, in a lot of cases now is both of our teams, I think, lose the games that really should come off as well, must wins. And I don't want this to sound like I'm coming to my team's defense here, but Northwestern is no slouch. Like I said, they have a record pretty similar to IU's, and I believe that they're both 9-5 and five in Big Ten play. And I'm, I know IU plays Northwestern later this week, so could be a good you know, test for both teams. But speaking of IU, how'd their week go? Well, IU is just riding the – the winning train, the winning ways here. <laughs> Rub it week. in, why don't you? For IU, they ended up winning both their games this week. We improved to 18 and 7. Was not looking that way about a month ago. IU looked like it would be another borderline tournament, likely NIT bid. I think the team has answered a lot of people's questions about if they can get the job done. So let's kind of take a, a look at what they did this week. So Saturday nail biter of a game against Michigan one by one point 62 to 61 IU really struggled until very late in that game so let's take a look at kind of what led to that success Trace Jackson Davis again no surprises at all leads the team with 28 points and 11 rebounds again He's coming in. He's getting it done. So this this game was a pretty big deal for him because it only puts him 29 points away from taking fifth in IU's all-time scoring list. He's scoring 25 or more pretty consistently here lately. 
And when he gets that record, it'll be none other than Coach Mike Woodson that he gets to take. That'll be a special moment when it happens. And I do say when, not if, obviously. I anticipate that being this week in my mind. Also, looking at one other notable player for that game, Javelin Hood Shafino finally came back and has been playing a lot better. So had 21 points, four rebounds, five assists. Pretty good game for him. Now, everyone else for IU scored no more than four points. That wow, was, that's rough. I'll also add it was also about seven players. Again, what I'm noticing about IU is they're they're leaning very heavily on Trace Jackson Davis. Kind of, I'm, I'll, I'll kind of compare it to Purdue's situation with Edie where both of those players have to play pretty well for their teams to have success. The problem with IU, though, is Trace Jackson Davis isn't that big. Right. Edie can just block and stuff and get to the rim. Jackson Davis is going to have to work a lot more for it. So, obviously, I'm glad to see that success for the team but it's not sustainable unless you start figuring out ways to get other bench players in the rotations and you really start getting your team recovered from all those injuries. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's dial it in. I know bigger picture, you need that production from your bench players, but let's kind of dial it into just this Michigan game. I know they came out with the win, but what led to those struggles to where they could only muster up those four points off the bench? Again, it's kind of like I just mentioned, the play of the center of the opposing team. So Hunter Dickinson is Purdue, or uh, sorry, not Purdue, Michigan center, considered to be one of the best. Again, you have Edie, you have Trace Jackson Davis, you go back and forth them for one and two, but Dickinson is in a lot of circles considered, considered the third best player in the Big Ten. He came out, had a pretty good performance, 16 points, seven rebounds, three blocks. Really performed pretty well for, for, or for Michigan early. His play, however, the problem wasn't so much the point totals because 16 and 7 doesn't really pop as, you know, a dominant performance. But they made Jackson Davis have to play the whole game because of him. He played all 40 minutes. Davis never sat on the bench in that game. That's a huge concern again. You're leaning on him to take, or not take, but make those plays for your team. Again, IU played behind, but all of two minutes of the first half, and they didn't get back in the game and tie it until 2.59 left in the second half. They spent most of their game having to play catch-up because you couldn't score early on. Again, Last shots for that last two minutes, 59 seconds. Nobody made another shot after Hood Shafino got his two free throws to seal the deal. IU had to play some pretty tough defense down the road, and they luckily, in this case, got it done. And uh, from my end, as a Purdue fan, just to give IU some credit here, anytime you have to struggle through a game, I know it's not pretty, but it ultimately makes your team better. And like you said, IU's last points came at the 259 mark. And to go the last three minutes, you know, and the defense keeping them ahead, that's that's something that's something you can take away from and it can really pay dividends come March. 
and I I understand people look at Michigan. It's like, oh, they're thirteen and eleven after playing that game against IU. Michigan is not a slouch as a program. Remember, they are consistently one of the better Big Ten teams, and their record. Again, we've talked about you know teams in the Big Ten all seeming to mirror each other in terms of conference play records, but Michigan's right there with IU, Iowa, Northwestern, all of them. And the concerns there came from the fact of why I said that's a pretty important game that IU needed to win. Yeah, and like you said, it was on the road. Anytime you can get a away win in the Big Ten, that's a big win regardless. Uh, Not to mention, like we said, I know Michigan's record doesn't portray it, but Michigan's got a decent team up there, especially, you know, behind Hunter Dickinson. But Adam, you mentioned IU had two wins this week, so who else did they beat this week? We got a win against number 24, Rutgers, 66-60. to 60. Did something else that Purdue can't seem to do. Hey, go easy on me here. I'm having a rough time. <laughs> Again, this is the game earlier in the week where Chase, Trace Jackson Davis became only the sixth player in IU's history to make 2,000 points. I think that's kind of what people take away from the game is Trace Jackson's accomplishments, but Miller Cobb, kind of not a name I really talk about a lot on the podcast, really came out strong in that game. 18 points on four of six shooting from behind the three-point line. Again, kept IU in that game, the flow, the pace of making those shots. And the player that I continue to seem, or that seems to continue to make slight improvements as a freshman, too, is Malik Winneau. Contributes in small ways. Again, five rebounds. I know that doesn't jump off the paper particularly, but... It's important in that game because IU wasn't really rebounding very well. They had a slight margin of victory against them. But the final thing with that particular game is that it was nice to see Jordan Geronimo back in the starting lineup for the first time. And I know that he's not scoring a whole lot for IU, didn't really do a whole lot against Michigan either. But IU getting healthy is pretty important as we head into the tournament. Xavier Johnson is still not back. And a lot of people said beginning of February, we still haven't seen him yet. Again, I know for a lot of teams, you know, you have that depth on the bench, but I think it's going to be all hands on deck for IU if they want to have any type of success heading into the Big Ten tournaments and heading into March Madness as well. Yeah, and if you don't mind, Adam, I just want to make a couple comments on this Rutgers game. You mentioned Trace Jackson Davis hitting the 2,000th point mile mark. And when it comes to, you know, naming somebody a legend at a certain school or team, a lot of that is subjective. But when you can solidify yourself putting up a point total like that, that's just verification for for whoever. I know, like I said, I'm a Boiler fan, and a lot of teams or fans of rival teams will try to discredit things. But – Trace Jackson Davis and I we talked about how how good of a person he is last year or last week on top of being this excellent player. So I just wanted to give him his roses for that hitting that milestone. Um but also you miss you mentioned uh Malik Renew racking up five rebounds and like you said that's not something that jumps out at you but as we saw later in the week when they just barely beat Michigan any contribution you can get off the bench is huge. And will be huge when it matters the most. So, just wanted to throw that out there. I know you, I like how you mentioned Jackson Davis's stats for the point perspective. I don't know if you remember me saying this a couple, couple weeks ago, but he took the all-time blocks record at IU yep. 
and he's top 10 for rebounds as well. He's never led in rebounds in terms of like the, the records in the season. It's just consistent numbers season to season. And it really kind of jumps out because when you start looking at IU's best players in history, I think if he were to win a championship, I think Jackson Davis would be IU's best player in their in the history of their program. And and like I said, a lot of that is subjective, but when you have the statistics, you know, all-time statistics to back that up, there's not a whole lot of people that could argue with that. But I know for a lot of people, you know, you look at Calvert Chaney, you look at Bailey, Jimmy Rails, I know he's a Kokomo person, just my district really looks pretty highly on him where we work. Yeah. You've got, you got Alan Henderson that went there, Yogi Farrell, a lot of great names in college history that have gone through that program. For IU, though, this season and all of it comes down to if you win, you get remembered. People will not remember Trace Jackson Davis, though, despite these stat lines, if he doesn't get something done for him. I, I, I'll agree and disagree there. I mean, I, I'm not as up to par on I, IU history as you are, but I don't know how many of those people you just mentioned actually won a championship with them, but you still remember their names, and it is for good reason. And I do believe that Trace Jackson Davis is one of those names that 20, 30 years down the road, people will still be talking about his time with IU. I will say, just to end on that point before I jump into IU women's basketball for a few minutes, I have enjoyed getting to see what he's done this season. I know a lot of people, again, we've we've talked about this. Borderline second-round pick last year decided to come back to solidify his name. I, I think he made the right move. I know IU is surely glad he made the right move. This program would not be where he where they are this season without him. We'd be talking, I believe, that Mike Woodson would be on the chopping block without Trace Jackson Davis. So Woodson, I think, owes a lot of his season success to him. IU's going to have to recruit well and continue to develop players well after Jackson Davis leaves at the end of this season. So speaking of players that have really developed, let's talk about the women's team real quick. Grace Berger, I, I know we haven't really dived very deep into these podcasts on the women's team, but again, still ranking number two in the country. And a lot of that is because of fifth-year senior Grace Berger. So this week, IU women's team faced number four, Iowa. A lot of people don't probably think of that as jumping off the page as impressive, but Caitlin, Caitlin Clark is yep. a player that has been very well established in college for a a couple of years looking just to take all-time scoring records. And just to throw in there, I would argue the best women's college basketball player right now, but continue. Mm. I will have to talk about that one later because I like the Indiana Fever pick, Aaliyah Boston. But looking at what she was able to do in the Iowa game, so number two, Indiana beats Iowa, 87-78. Berger contributes a season-high 26 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists. Not not IU's best player, though. That's Mackenzie Holmes. She's been, she's mm-hmm. been picked in the WNBA pretty early. I want to say she went fifth overall last year. Contributed, again, 24 points of her own, 
and the duo together, they spurred a late charge to send Indiana past Iowa. Not a game that IU fans should have taken very lightly, but a significant one, too, because it got more fans into the stands to watch this women's team. You got IU fans coming from all over that are in support of this team. This is not a team that Indiana has ever had before. IU's women's team is kind of in the middle. They're a middle-based team. But this season, Berger had even quoted that she came back because she wanted to win a Big Ten championship. In her mind, she said, I remember losing to Iowa last year three times. They lost in the Big Ten tournament tournament that championship game so anytime you play a team like that it means a little bit more so sounds like she was had a little vendetta wanted to come back and seek out some revenge but looked like this time it went in IU's favor yeah and like I said like you said this was a huge win for Indiana I don't want to undersell that one bit because as we mentioned Caitlin Clark is averaging 27.4 points per game has numerous 40-point games this season. So this is not this is no slouch of, an, of a team in Iowa that they just beat. But my question is this, and I do believe that IU and Iowa should both be in the talk for this. Do you think IU has a legitimate shot at winning the women's championship this year? I think this is their only year. Grace Berger's gone. She's a fifth-year senior at the end. I know IU's been recruiting better, but Mackenzie Holmes is also gone at the end of the year. It's kind of a now or never situation. South Carolina, I know they're currently number one. They've real, they really seem to be able to establish themselves as a consistent women's team. You have teams like Notre Dame that normally do really well. UConn, th- those teams always stick around yeah. in women's basketball. This is IU Cinderella story. I think that they can absolutely win it. I would be a little shocked if they didn't. I look at the competitive play that they've had against teams just in the past week. And all season, Maryland ranks number eight in women's. Iowa was number four. Purdue always has a really good program. And this week, they have a very important three-game schedule. They face number 13, Ohio State, which is going to be today, tonight. Hopefully, the women's team can come out and get that one done. IU did blow them out because Ohio State was ranked number four. IU blew them out of the water the last time by over 20 points. I hope for the same result, but this time it's in Columbus. And then IU faces number 13, Michigan, later this week. And then they go face Purdue at home. Again, that game is significant because it's, again, another in-state rivalry. Purdue's a pretty renowned team in their own. Pretty reputable, normally get pretty far in those tournaments. That's a sold-out game against Purdue, though. It's going to have all of Assembly Hall field or filled. So, again, beats the all-time record for women's uh, seating capacity, all the number of people that are coming in. So, IU, I think, has to win all three of those games. I believe that they rightfully will have earned being the number one team in the nation if they win out this comp- this week with those three games. Pretty hard week, considering you're playing three games in the next seven days. Yep, and I, I just want to throw this out there, too, as we kind of start to wrap things up here. You kind of mentioned how – it's now or never for the IU women's program, but I kind of want to add this little twist to it. I do 100% agree with that, but at the same time, just like you mentioned, that that IU and Purdue game is a sold-out game. So 
in my mind, this could be a turning point for that program. You know, once a, once a team does something like this and the fans get engaged, your recruiting starts becoming easier and easier and you land these bigger recruits. And it sounds like they have the right coach in place to get the best out of their players. So I could see this being one of those years that kind of turns that program around. And who knows, in the next next handful of years, we could be talking about IU's women's hoops being right up there with the men's program. See, I'd like to see IU get to the level where they're compared to UConn or South Carolina. And I know those are the two juggernauts in women's basketball for college. Yeah, and no easy task getting to that level, but I do believe they have all the pieces in place to potentially make a run at that. Hopefully we get to continue to report good news on this. Yeah, I will agree with you there, and I hope that they beat the crap out of the Buckeyes because as we mentioned last week, it's always a good day when the Buckeyes lose. In any sport. Oh, yes. Adam, I think it's been a pretty good episode. What do you got for us for the verse of the week? All right, so this week's verse comes from Romans fifteen thirteen. Our verse says that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I just feel like we need peace in these times. The weather's been nice. Looking for peace, I'm hoping that everybody can certainly have as much fulfillment, joy, and all of those different things as we all rightfully and hopefully deserve to have in our life. Yes, absolutely. And I, I love that verse. And like you said, put your hope in God. And I really do believe, because I've experienced myself, that you will experience a joy and peace that you didn't even know was possible. I'm not saying it's always going to be, you know, smooth riding, but it, it's there, it's real, and I've felt it myself. That's a good verse, Adam. All right, everybody. I thank you for joining us once again. We will hear you or we will talk to you guys again next week. In the meantime, you can find us on HoosierStateSports.com or look us up on Facebook at Hoosier State Sports. But until next week, God bless. And everyone have a good week.